very powerful words. Very awesome to hear the voices praising God and worshiping him today. That really puts you in the mood to hear the truth, does it not? Please find your way in God's precious word to chapter 4, verse 8 in the book of Galatians as we walk through this letter. Paul is doing a, a thorough job of explaining God's plan to the churches in Galatia and to us too. Paul had established churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. He shared the gospel with them. He explained salvation. He explained God's plan. And they had become a family to him. They had become brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, some of the false teachers had come down, come to town after Paul had left Galatia, and they began to make this claim. If a Jewish person were to get saved by faith in Jesus Christ, they were still required to keep the law. Faith in Christ did not set them free from the law. They taught that the law had come from God, and if you were a believer in God, then you were under the God-given law. They also taught that when the Gentiles were saved, they needed to become Jewish. They, that is, they needed to submit to the Mosaic law. And Paul saying, no, 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 no. And he hits this problem of false teaching from every angle to make sure everyone clearly understood, to make sure everyone clearly understood the purpose of the law and how they are no longer under the curse of the law. Anyone who had put their faith in Jesus was set free from the curse. And in order to understand this truth, Paul takes them back to the beginning and shows them God's plan. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I will make you the father of many nations. And it began when God set Abraham apart and formed the nation of Israel. And it would be through God's chosen nation that all the nations of the world would be blessed. It was through the nation of Israel that God fulfilled the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. God tells Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, that is the seed of God had, that God had promised, that is the Messiah, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So after the fall of mankind, after Adam and Eve had failed at their God-given duties, after Adam and Eve each chose to be a son of Satan, a child of disobedience, instead of a child of the Son of God, God said, I will fix this. I will send a Savior. He will send a Messiah, born of a woman. And we can see as we study the word of God that Jesus Christ is the Savior that was sent. He is the one that God had promised to send to fix this problem. This is the gospel message that was proclaimed from the beginning. From the beginning, this is the message that was proclaimed. It is through Jesus Christ that fellowship was restored between God and man. If anyone puts their faith in Jesus... That is trust that Jesus has won the victory over death and the demonic realm. That Christ, uh, trust that Christ has paid the debt that you, for your sins that you could not pay. Then your fellowship with God is restored. You then become a son of God. You then become a part of the kingdom of God. You are a child of God. And that's the best news that anyone could ever hear. Amen. I've heard a lot of good news, but nothing like that right there. 
Jesus was the promised seed. He came to engage in a fatal conflict with Satan that would result in Satan's destruction and devastation. And because of that victory, mankind has been liberated. We have become sons of God, paradise, regained, brought out of exile, back into fellowship with God Almighty. The fullness of time had come. We can now be sons of God again. <clears throat> now, there are some benefits that comes with being the son of God. One of the benefits we saw was that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Chapter, ver chapter 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So we see, the, we see the Trinity at work here. As God brings one into the family of God, he sent his Son to die for us. Jesus, the Son, sent his Spirit to live in us. And it, it is the Spirit in us that gives us our confirmation that the work of Christ is complete. It is the Spirit in our hearts that gives us the ability to love the Father. The Spirit quickens and increases our love for God. We are able to cry out now, Abba, Father, or Daddy, or Papa, because the Spirit is in our hearts and confirms that our relationship has been reconciled. The Spirit also confirms that we have been adopted. And if you have been adopted, then you are a son of God. And the Spirit works, starts working immediately in the hearts of every believer. He gives us love. He gives us a divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1. You heard me say last week, when Christ came, everything changed. I said, when the Spirit comes into the heart of a believer, everything changes. We become a new creation. We have a new life. No, no longer does that old sinful nature rule over us. Our eyes are open to the truth, and we're able to see that way out that God has promised when we are tempted. Everything changes. We now have the ability to live a righteous and faithful life for the glory of God. So we receive the Holy Spirit when we become a child of God. But wait, there's more. Sounds like an infomercial here, doesn't it? But wait, there's more. Chapter 3, verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So if you're a son, you're now an heir through God. And last week, we looked at uh, some of our inheritance. We saw that the God, that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3. 1 Peter 1.4 told us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, undefading, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So our inheritance as sons and daughters of God is in the new covenant. We are sons and daughters of God. We as sons and daughters of God will receive a promised eternal inheritance that is eternal life with God in heaven. We all know that. But like I said, there's more to the inheritance. God had a plan from the beginning for his people. God had a plan from the beginning for the kingdom of God. And I want to stop right here and say that just for a minute and say this, brothers and sisters, if you hear anyone say that we do not need the Old Testament, a red flag should pop up immediately. Or if anyone says that we're a New Testament church, the Old Testament was for Israel, that should raise a red flag. Because as we have seen in our study in Galatians, we, we, we're not able to understand God's plan 
without the Old Testament. 92.73% of the New Testament would not make any sense without the Torah. I made that number up. <laughs> Sounded good. <laughs> Let's just say a lot of it would not make sense. 92% sounds good. We have to go back to the promises that God made in Genesis to completely understand the gospel message. It is there where we see the foundation of the gospel message and understanding of God's purpose with, for his people and for this earth. God's plan began in Genesis, begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. It, it's one complete story, one complete plan. So don't throw half of the story away. Don't ever do that. Back to our inheritance. Like I said, there's more than just an inheriting eternal life. Listen to Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Something to take notice here. The promise to Abraham was that Abraham and his family or descendants would inherit the world. The world. Did you catch that? The world. That was from the beginning with Adam and Eve. What did he do? He gave them dominion over what? The world. That was his plan from the beginning. We always get focused on the promised land that, that God had promised the Israelites coming out of Egypt. We talk about that land all the time. But no, from the beginning, it was the world. The, the, that promise was, was to and for Israel. That was when God was setting Israel apart from the rest of the world. But if you go back to the promise of Abraham, if you go back to uh, Adam and Eve, the original plan, the promise was that, you know, that Abraham's descendants shall inherit the world. The whole world is the inheritance of Abraham's Jewish plus Gentile children. There is neither Greek nor Jew. All are one big happy family, right? We are all in the kingdom of God. That promise is now being fulfilled. So as we look back to Abraham, we see the beginning of God's plans for his children starting to unfold. When we look back at the Exodus, we see the picture of the fullness of time that was to come. Does this sound familiar as we study Galatians? In Exodus, God led his people out of slavery. They were set free and they were to never go back. God taking his people out of slavery to a promised land to be a light unto the world. As we look back at that, it helps us understand what has happened in the fullness of time. We, sons of God, are led out of slavery, right, by the Spirit. We are set free from the bondage of sin. We are enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to sin as Israel was enslaved to Egypt, a slave to Egypt. But now we are free and we are to never go back. It was a beautiful picture of what God was going to do in the end. So our exodus is when we become sons of God, we are set free and we are granted our inheritance, not just eternal life, but we inherit the whole world. Now that doesn't mean you go around claiming everything. All right. Don't go around and say, that's mine. That's mine. That car over there, that's mine. No, that's not how it works. We inherit the whole world, and I'll explain it more in just a minute. 
that th this is the promised land. The world is the promised land. Just as God has planned from the beginning. There are no boundaries for the kingdom of God. His kingdom is worldwide. Right down to a little town in Youngsville. Worldwide. Think about this for a moment. When it's all said and done, what does Christ do? He creates what? He creates a new heaven and a new earth. That is the inheritance for the ones who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. When we pass from this life, listen, we, we, we do not just float around on a cloud playing a violin or, or harp. What do they play? I don't know what they say. You know, that's not what we do. There is a new heaven. There is a new earth that is coming. A lot will be going on. And what we do on this earth today with what God has given us will determine what we'll be doing throughout eternity. What we do on this earth today with what God has given us will determine what we will be doing throughout eternity. There is more to our inheritance than just eternal life. Paul is telling the Galatians, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection, Abraham's family is passing through slavery into inheritance. We are Abraham's family, the family of God, which is now defined in terms of Jesus' messianic death and resurrection. And therefore, we are on our way to inheriting the promises of God. And we must never, ever think about going back to slavery. We are free, free indeed. Paul, Paul's driving that point home to the Galatians. I love these verses. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are adopted as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you, no long, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We should have those verses down by now. Do you see the benefits of being a son? So the question is, why would anyone ever want to go back to being enslaved again? Why would you want to do that? Paul lays out who's in the family of God, and he lists out the benefits of being in the family, adopted, given the spirit, become a son, an heir to it all. Why would anyone ever, ever think about going back after knowing that truth? Well, it happens. Look down at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? If Paul had lived in today's time, he'd have put a really on the end of that verse. It would be, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? Really? Really? He would have put it there. <clears throat> Paul says, now that you know the truth, how can you turn back? 
How can you do that? Now that you know who you are in Christ, why would you go back? Now that you have been set free, why would you want to be in bondage? Now, now that you know what you know, is that really what you want? Is that really what you want? One guy put it this way. Hey, people, don't abandon sonship for servanthood. Now that you know, now that you have tasted the good stuff, really? Is that what you want? Listen, Paul was drawing a sharp distinction between pre-Christian passive Galatian believers and their present status as adopted sons in the family. We saw that. You were enslaved by false gods. And, you know, he didn't go into detail about their false god. Not necessary. Because it didn't matter. Whatever false god they worship, whether it's Zeus or Hermes or whatever, did not matter. Whatever they worship was a false god. He didn't have to go down the list. How do we know that? Because we know that there is only one true God, only one true living God. Amen? If you're not worshiping Jesus Christ, then you're worshiping a false god, no matter what name you give him. Paul said, before you did not know him, before you did not know the one true God, before you were a slave, before you were ignorant, but now, now, now you know the truth. The spirit is in you who is a witness to the truth. Now you know who the one true living God is. As I studied this text, it reminded me of well, when, the time when Paul went up to Mars Hill. He goes up to Athens, and they have all these monuments and all these altars set up to all these so-called gods. And they all had names on them. But they had one shrine or altar with the title, The Unknown God. Listen to what Paul says to the people there, Acts 17, 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. I bet Paul was thinking, you tee it up, and I'm going to knock this one out of the park. <laughs> you know, so, sometimes God just opens those doors. You just go right through it. Listen to what he says. What therefore you worship as unknown, Paul says, this I proclaim to you. You see, think about this. Because they had an altar to the unknown God, what they were doing, they, they were acknowledging the existence of someone beyond their ability to understand. They knew there was a greater one. They were acknowledging that there is someone who had made all things. It was that unknown God that they didn't know. They had looked at creation. And they knew that there was a powerful God somewhere, but they did not know who he was. So Paul says, let me tell you who that unknown God is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, made by man. Paul's like, he doesn't live over there in your altar, in your little temple. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. In other words, Paul says, man has no excuse for not seeking the one true God because God has revealed himself in man's conscience and in the physical world and in creation. Everyone knows there is a God. Paul continues with them. He said, you can't claim ignorance. He said, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some, uh, as some of your own poet, poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. They knew he, we came from somewhere. You see, all those philosophers and religious leaders, they, they knew that mankind was created. Being then God's offspring, Paul's saying, that's what you say. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of an imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By whom? By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. No one can claim ignorance. In the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. And we have assurance that Jesus Christ is the one sent because of his death and resurrection. Every person that was there that day when Paul spoke can no longer claim ignorance. They heard the truth. The same teaching applies to the church of Galatia. You were once ignorant. You did not know about the one true God. You were in bondage, but now a great change has taken place. You now know God. And not only that, but God knows you on a personal level. When you were ignorant sinners, you served false gods, he said. But then you trusted Christ and have been delivered from superstition and slavery. So there's no excuse for you to abandon your liberty in Christ and go back to bondage. No excuse. You can't claim ignorance. Basically, Paul's saying, look, you're dropping out of the school of grace and enrolling in the, in the kindergarten of law. They themselves were destroying all the, all the good work that the Lord had done in them through Paul's ministry while possessing the full knowledge of who Jesus is and what he had done. They were giving up the power of the gospel for the weakness of the law. They were giving up the wealth of the gospel for the poverty of the law. The law never made, the law never made anyone rich or powerful. On the contrary, the law could only reveal man's weakness and spiritual bankruptcy. And you want to go back to that? Really? Really? You see, the Galatians were Gentiles. They were Galatians who had put their trust in Jesus. And so they were set free from the bondage that they were once in. They were set free. And here comes the Jewish believers who were confused. And they want the Gentile believers to become Jewish believers. They were to, to identify as Jews in order to be, to be considered a true believer. They were jumping out of the pot into the fire. Is that right? 
They didn't improve their circumstances. No, no wonder Paul weeps over the believers as he sees them abandoned liberty for bondage, power for weakness, and wealth for poverty. That, that is, is where you were. Christ brought you out. Now you're going over there into the same bondage you were in before? Really? Is that what you want? Paul threw a little statement in there that should have rocked their world. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. That should have rattled them to the core of their being. False gods do not know you. You're not known by false gods. They, they're not alive. They have no power or nothing. But now, now, Paul says, now you are known by the one true living God. Think about it for a moment. Think about that. The all-powerful, omniscient, is all-knowing God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, knows us personally knows each and every one of us personal. That should rock us to our core. Amen? God knows his children. We can't hide from him. We can't do wrong and think he doesn't know. He knows. We know him, and that means he knows us. Can't claim ignorance. Can't say you didn't know that time has passed. That's what Paul is saying. At one time, you didn't know. But now you do. No excuse for your conduct. All the parents said, Did you know better? I've heard so many times in my life. You, you know, I, I want to believe that the Galatians had no intention of returning to slavery. I, I, I don't think they saw it that way. I think they were confused. Remember, they, they didn't have the word of God like we do. They, they were living out the New Testament. So, so think about this. What do the Galatians know about the people who came to town, uh, the false teachers who came to town? What, what do the Galatians know about the people who came to town teaching that God would want you to become Jewish once you put your faith in Jesus. What do they know about them? They know they're Jewish. They're the Jewish believers that come. What does that mean? Well, they are the one true God's chosen race. That gives them a little credibility. They were from Jerusalem. Where did the church start? Jerusalem. They were believers. But I'm thinking that the Galatians may not have fully realized what was happening to them as they listened to these false teachers. I, I don't think they thought it all the way through. I, I don't think they spent much time thinking about the inevitable consequences of, of them keeping the law or getting circumcised. Well, what was the reason for doing it? Were they attempting to gain additional merit before God by adopting Judaism as a religion on top of trusting Christ? Whatever the reason, they were confused. They, they had put their trust in Christ, but look what they were doing. Verse 10 says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid, Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul knows 
that this is the way for the false teachers to bring in followers. You see, once they had persuaded the Galatians to submit themselves to observing days and months, then the decisive step of circumcision could be imposed real easy. Real easy. Chapter 5, verse 2 indicates that the Galatians had not yet accepted the circumcision. But you know what? Satan is patient. False teachers are very patient. They know how to work their way into someone's heart. They know what it takes to get followers. Right now, you're, you're only observing special days. No big deal. It's no big deal. Next, you are already, you know, next, you, you know, they'll say, well, you, you know, you're already serving the, observing the days. That's nothing. Might as well get circumcised. It's real in the man. Real in the man. Real in the man. It's nothing. No big deal. Think about Paul. Think about the apostle here. We have to understand the heart of Paul here. He knows what he had taught them. That's why he's very upset. He knows what he has taught them. The teacher knows what his students have been taught. Paul knows that they have been taught the truth about the one true living God and the freedom he brings. He's asking them, why, why even give an ear to those teachers? You've been taught the truth. What they are proclaiming does not line up with what I taught you. Stay with the truth. Paul says, I've labored in vain because from what I see, you didn't get what I taught you. Did I waste all my time on you? I taught you the riches in Christ, and here you are observing these weak and begging ceremonies. Really? Really? That's what you're doing? Is that what you want? Paul knows that he taught them that God's laws and ceremonies were beautiful in their time and place. But they are now a hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is idolatry to turn from Christ to the law. It is bondage to turn from Christ to the law. Have I taught you in all those hours of teaching? Paul continues in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you. He said, I beg of you. I urge you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Coming from the heart of an apostle, coming from the heart of a brother in Christ, Paul challenged the believers. Become like me, for I became like you. Here's what Paul is saying. Become free from the law as I am. Think about this. Paul, before his conversion, was a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless when it came to being under the law. But after his conversion, he became like the Gentiles, no longer living under the law. He became like them. That's what he wanted them to be like. You know what the irony is here? Paul left the law after his conversion. The Galatian Gentiles were putting themselves under the law after their conversion. He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Be like me. Paul then takes them back to when he taught, back to when he taught them. He takes them back to the personal relationship they had. 
you did me no wrong, verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Paul didn't come to town with a new robe on. He didn't have a fresh cut from great clips. His outward appearance was not all that. I had that moment. We never videoed our preaching. He did the other week and I watched it. I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> I didn't realize I was old and all these wrinkles that this thing is showing over here. I didn't realize that. I thought I looked just like I did the day Tammy married me because that's the way I see her. I'm thinking she sees the same thing. I'm afraid not. <laughs> that moment. His outward appearance was not all that. He even had a, a, a body ailment, a bodily ailment. He, he doesn't say what it was, but whatever it was, it must have made Paul somewhat repulsive in appearance because he commends the Galatians for the way they received him in spite of the way he looked. To them, he was an angel of God because of the message he brought. Because of the message he brought. They loved Paul not because of how awesome he looked and what a great preacher he was or how charismatic he was or how he made them feel. They loved Paul because the truth he preached set them free. Verse 15, Paul asks, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. They had received Paul with great joy. Their appreciation knew no limits. The word says they would, have, they would have made the sacrifice of their eyes for Paul. This may simply be a bold figure of speech to convey the high esteem the Galatians had for him as he preached the truth. It showed them that they loved him enough that they would have given their most precious possessions to him. It wasn't because of his good looks. It was because of the message. And because of that message, there was a special bond between Paul and the Galatians. They had become brothers and sisters in Christ. They had become family. And Paul says, what happened? What has happened to that love? What has happened to the blessedness, the happiness you experienced when you heard the gospel and trusted in Christ? Have I then, verse 16, become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul sought to, glory, sought to glorify Christ, but the Judaizers, as we see, tried to glorify themselves and their converts. Paul says, I did not come to you trying to wow you, or did I come wanting to you to praise me? It was never about me. It was always about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had done. Not like the false teachers. What does he say? Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them watch out for these people watch out nothing new under the sun false teachers today use the same playbook they're so easy to spot when you know the truth a true servant of god does not use people to build himself up for his work 
He ministers in love to help people know Christ better and to glorify him. Beware of those religious leaders who want your exclusive allegiance because he is the only one who is right, he'll tell you. Beware of that. He will use you as long as he can and then drop you for somebody else. On to the next victim they move. Paul is the example of what a true spiritual leader is. A true spiritual leader gets the people to love and follow Christ, not to promote himself and his ministry. Look at the heart of Paul. It has always been good to, verse 18, it has always been good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The teacher knows what the student has been taught. And Paul is in, in anguish. He wants to go back to his little children. He wants to protect them so they will not be taken in by false teachers. He wants Christ to be formed in them, formed in them so that they will not give an ear to the false teachers. So that they can walk in the liberty that Christ has provided for all who would put their trust in them. He wants them to be able to freely love God, not out of duty. He is and his heart breaks for his brothers and sisters who are being led astray. You know, there's a lot of benefits that come with being a son or daughter of God, but there's also a lot of responsibility that comes with being a son or daughter of daughter of God. We cannot claim ignorance when it comes to knowing the one true living God that times past. It is our job to make sure we are well equipped in the truth so that we will not be taken in by false teachers. It is our responsibility to know the truth so that we can share that truth with others. When we become a child of God, we inherit the entire world and we are to go and make disciples throughout the world for the glory of God. We see the heart that Paul had for the churches. It's the same heart that pastors are to have for their flock. It's the same heart that parents are to have for their children. We're all to have a heart that desires to, for all to know the one true living God. Amen. Pastor.